I just wanted to say thank you, Major, for a most interesting journey. You're taking Zial back to Cardassia with you. After six years, she deserves a home and a father. Would that make things difficult for you? I let you know. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek bands step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton observing my eyeballs turning from majestic blue to demonic red. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the journey of Dukat, a character that I think it's been a while, Tyler. I think, didn't we rank him as the all-time greatest Star Trek villain when we did our villain rankings? Uh, yes, and I, and even if we did not, I think you and I would have an argument right now and make the case for him being the all-time best Star Trek villain. Is that fair enough between the two of us? Yes, I think that is very true. And I was thinking about it at work today as I was kind of mentally putting this episode together as to what I wanted to, you know, points I wanted to hit and what have you. It occurred to me... I think he's the only kind of like big iconic Star Trek villain that hasn't been kind of tarnished. You know, you look at like the Borg Queen and you get to like Picard season two. And if you are like me, you're not his mother. (laughs) Or if you are like me, you kind of watch well Picard season three. Yeah, like the kind of the resolution with the Borg Queen didn't really work for me. So like, yeah, Picard uh, didn't do great things for the Borg Queen. And then like Khan, you've got like Into Darkness doing weird things with Khan and I don't know, depending where you sit with that Strange New Worlds episode and finding out that Khan is Canadian. Uh, again, it's like, oh, kind of defangs the character a little yeah. bit. Whereas, like, Dukat is kind of, like, locked in amber as, like, the perfect Star Trek villain that has not been undone. Even a brief little mention in the second episode of Season 2 of Picard was more just fun. It didn't really upset kind of how I think of the character. And it was, like, kind of an alt-reality anyways. And I don't know if he's yeah. so much uh, locked in amber as he is locked in the fire caves, Cameron. That is a better way to put it, and I should have gone with that one. Much better. Um, It's interesting here, and I wonder if kind of the journey of Dukat actually starts in Star Trek The Next Generation, in which we had one Mark Alimo, who played Dukat throughout the run of Deep Space Nine. Um, He appeared as kind of the first Cardassian antagonist, one Gul Massets. He had that uh, funky uh, mustache, that uh, the walrus sort of uh, mustache that uh, was ever so popular back in the 90s, right, Cam? I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> yes. You never left the 90s. <laughs> I can tell that. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think what happened, though, is you, you get to uh, Emissary, the uh, series premiere of Deep Space Nine, and they had somebody else cast as Goldacott. And I don't think they had this big, giant journey mapped out for this antagonist who just happened to be named Goldacott. I think he really is, you know, the, the, the former, you know, uh, prefector or prefect of you know, Bajor, and, you know, like, yeah, stick him in the first episode, and it just wasn't working, so, you know, the producer's like, okay, well, what about that great actor who played Masset, you know, way back in The Wounded from season four mm. of Next Generation? Well, we know he can get the job done, so let's put him in there, and I really don't think we'd be talking, you know, about the journey of Goldacott without Mark Alimo in this role. I, I really think that this is kind of one of those instances where the sheer charisma and magnetism of an actor really got this guy secured in and locked in for, you know, 35 or so episodes, uh, you know, that helped boost his career. Yeah, like, I don't know what Mark Alimo's range is as an actor. Like, he's a character actor who pops up all the time in various, you know, smaller roles. I don't know that he has, like, infinite range, though, as sort of a, a leading type. But, like, this is a perfect merging of, like, the charisma and just the elements of an actor with a character. And it's just like, it is a perfect creation. When he walks out, that's Goldicott. That is not Mark Alimo playing Goldicott. And you can see why he's so proud of the character and why fans responded. You don't often get a creation that feels so fully formed out of the gate. Like, it feels like once he starts inhabiting Goldicott, 
right there. You don't even need a lot of time to get introduced to that character. I'm glad you brought up kind of the fan reaction as well, because as the series was going on, you know, fans really, really liked him, found him very charismatic. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, that's, you know, all on Mark Alimo right now, because if you listen to... You know, the things that he's saying, <laughs> if you observe the actions he's doing, he's a terrible, terrible person, you know? And I remember, like, when R. Stephen Bear, the showrunner of uh, Deep Space Nine, he was getting frustrated with the fans. He's just like, guys, he's, like, supposed to be a total turd, you know? And so he'd keep giving him, like, worse and worse actions to do and all that. And it didn't really matter. You know, like, fans were drawn to this character. You, you could understand why he became a cult leader. At a certain point, but you know, <laughs> you also brought up a good point um, a moment ago, with regards to you know Mark Alimo and how he approached the character, and it was very clear watching the "What We Left Behind" Deep Space Nine documentary that Alimo is very, very fond of this character, and he actually did see him, and he approached this character as the hero in every single episode that he did, and you know, a lot of actors they're they're very, I don't know know if i defensive is not the right word but protective of the characters yeah they play and it's very clear that that's how he saw ducat as well maybe maybe just a little bit misunderstood um so i don't know this will be a fun discussion i think what we'll do is kind of go from season to season because it's interesting because you can kind of pinpoint maybe journeys that he has within the season as you know maybe as the show becomes more serialized it's clear that the writers want to tap him in a specific way as the story of the season goes on. It's interesting to me they didn't necessarily have that character locked down from the beginning because, you know, when you look at, like, early DS9, so much of it is driven by Bajoran politics. Like, it's not like they're gazing outwards at Dominion Wars and Klingon invasions and all that sort of thing. They are like, this is a show about Bajor and Bajoran politics. You would have thought that, like, the Dukat stuff would have been, to them, important because what else do they have? Well, I think that's just a testament to Marco Limo, you know, and just like how much yeah. he, because, okay, you know how it took forever for Deep Space Nine to finally settle on Admiral Ross? It was just kind of a revolving <laughs> door of admirals all the time. And I, I think it's just tough. Like, okay, like, do we want to have like a different Cardassian antagonist of the week? Or can we just go to the person that we can rely on no matter what? He's going to deliver what we're looking for versus trying to find... You know, so like, did they really try to get like other, uh, uh, oh, there's Gull, uh, it wasn't Gull, I think it was Gull Evek that, uh, he came, uh, he's originally on TNG, then he appeared on Deep Space Nine, and then he also had a very brief appearance in Caretaker on Voyager. Mm -hmm. And I think Gull Evek was maybe the only one that, uh, they thought at the time that kind of, uh, captured that Cardassian spirit, but it wasn't like they were going to Gull Evek like week to week that they were with, uh, Gull Dukat. No, and they had, like, Kai Wynn as a, a villain kind of character, but it didn't seem like there was any other attempts at creating a grand villain in DS9. It, it seemed like they pretty quickly realized that Gull um, Dukat was the way to go. Yeah, so, and look, okay, obviously, yeah, we get episode one emissary, and I understand the parallels going on here. You've got uh, the, the former prefect of Bajor handing over the space station to Starfleet and Bajoran administrators, and you have him kind of pushing, do I need to make a return? Mm. Can you guys actually survive without me? And you can kind of understand his point of view. Like, he was humiliated having to give up the Cardassian occupation of Bajor there. And so, you know, it, it's like, I, I get how he works as an antagonist for episode one, do they really need him, you know, throughout the course of the series, just based on what was on the script on the page right there? Like, my guess is like, oh, no, that's kind of a fun antagonist for episode one. Um, but, you know, I wonder, though, Cam, if, if if the original actor was not working out, maybe they did have grander designs for him. Like, they wanted to have an actor that would uh, be kind of more of a recurring antagonist in that way. And that, that's why they weren't satisfied with what was going on with that initial performance. And they're like, uh, you know what? Let's go to that Gulma set actor instead. Yeah, that's pretty possible. Uh, and po maybe even probable that that was the case. I, I do think, though, like as shaky kind of as the setup for Ducat is in that um, pilot, it kind of underlines an element as to why I think this character is so liked by people in a lot of ways is that 
Galdicott, unlike a lot of other villains, things don't go his way. He is frequently an underdog. You know, we opened the show, the, the series, with him, like, losing control of, you know, Deep Space Nine. And throughout the run, and I'm sure many of the moments we're going to touch on in his journey, it's him having things taken away or being knocked down a peg. And so it's always the sense of this character who keeps trying to climb back up versus someone like a Khan or the Borg Queen who kind of like rule supreme in their own world without a lot to contest them. But it's all it's not like he's the uh, Dr. Claw, you know, where he's always foiled and that kind of defangs him to a certain degree. No. It, it, he, he always seemed kind of dangerous, you know, even if things uh, don't go his way. You know, there's kind of this danger, almost rabid dog sort of danger to him. And there's also like a real psychological complexity to him. When Dr. Claw, you know, gets foiled and drives off saying, I'll get you gadget. You're like, okay. Whereas like Ducat, you really go through like an emotional journey with that character in a way. Like they give you way more insight into where he is emotionally throughout the run of that show than most villains get. So why don't we jump over to uh, Duet. That was the only other episode of uh, season one in which Goldicott appeared. And, and this is a situation, of course, we know this is the uh, Cardassian uh, kind of like bookkeeper who was so guilt-ridden by his involvement with the Cardassian occupation that he essentially impersonated a leader there who was much more complicit with what was going on. And Ducat's role was, he wasn't so much the ag antagonist in, in this. He was more like, um, let's make sure that like uh, this guy is who he says he is. And, uh, you know, so he was kind of fulfilling. It, it, it could have been a role given to any other Cardassian, you know, but I, I think the thing is that they liked the actor, they liked the character, and they're like, okay, let's just, let's give this to Dukat. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a necessary episode for his own personal journey. Like if he was not featured in Duet, I don't think that would have necessarily changed his journey throughout the course of Deep Space Nine. No, I find a lot of his like early appearances, it's more like he becomes kind of this bureaucrat character, but like a menacing bureaucrat. So there's always a certain tension when he's on screen, but what he's actually contributing to the episode, it's not measuring up to what he's going to do later on. Yeah. And, and so if you jump over to, you know, season two, I, I think he is really becoming much more of that antagonist, though. And I, it is interesting because... You know, he he starts as an antagonist, mm -hmm. and then he goes to more of kind of a reluctant ally around the midway run of the series. And then by the end, he is kind of an all-out villain. So it is interesting that we're still in kind of the antagonist mode here. And so, again, um, just like uh, season one, he is in the premiere here in season two in uh, The Homecoming, which has to deal with the... Uh, the uh, kind of military coup being uh, helped out by the Cardassians un unknowingly uh, here on Bajor. And um, it, it's not as if, like, you know, he has Bajor's best interest in mind. But it is kind of setting the, uh, planting the seeds for how wronged he always feels about uh, his perception uh, on Bajor. And how, you know, he, he was only trying to do what was right for the Bajorans and, um, you know, and, and he, he would love to have another chance to run Bajor again here in, uh, as we start off with season two. And I think that's interesting in that you go to an episode like Cardassians. Um, that's where we have the, uh, Cardassian orphan boy and it's focused on, uh, <laughs> that was the alternate title. <laughs> Cardassian orphan boy. Yeah. Uh, that was the name of my yeah. punk band in uh, high school as well. <laughs> yeah. But essentially like Cardassian orphan, like raised by Bajorans. And, um, again, Dukat's there to make sure that, uh, this kid is reunited with his biological parents. And so it is interesting that they are using him for kind of mechanical plot purposes, but it gives you a sense of who this character is just a, a few episodes. And, you know, we're not even, you know, a half a dozen episodes into his journey. We do know that he is there to kind of be the thorn in the side of the Bajorans as well as, you know, to a certain degree, Starfleet, but much more so the Bajorans. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really important about him too is that, um, while he is primarily an enemy of um, the Bajorans, this show is a show led by Avery Brooks. And it's tough to find an antagonist to basically match up against him with dramatic heft. And I think that was one thing Ducat did, is that a lot of the scenes where you f featured Ducat in these kind of bureaucratic roles in the first couple seasons, if you put him up against a lightweight, Ducat rules the scene. And he's the perfect person to get put up against in a dialogue scene against Avery Brooks because it's like, it's kind of like a, a real like clash of the titans watching these two go against each other. And 
it there's so much energy coming off these scenes whereas like you and i have seen many episodes of other star trek shows where it's say like i don't know picard talking to kind of like a player of the week where you're like well we know who's gonna win this battle of the wits uh you mean the impractical jokers <laughs> yes exactly picard season two <laughs> Brian Brian Quinn <laughs> drops in with a dog. Um, <laughs> Maybe not on Picard. I'm thinking more TNG. <laughs> okay, right. um, I, I just want to. And it's great they bring up Avery Brooks here because I, I think you know it's the midway part of season two is where I think Ducat's real journey begins. Is because we've got Necessary Evil that flashback episode to Terak Nor. Yeah, and we see Ducat's kind of in his prime, so to speak, uh, running the uh, space station then. But Maki uh, parts one and two. That's I, I love how you brought up Avery Brooks just a second ago, because then it's him and Cisco on a mission together. And you have, like, again, Ducat is not actually the antagonist so much in this episode. Uh, he's kind of the re reluctant ally here. And him and Avery Brooks teaming up to uh, figure out what, what's going on with these Starfleet terrorists or freedom fighters, however you want to define it here. Um, this is a great two-parter kind of road trip uh, for parts of this uh, journey as well. And it, it's like, okay, he's not just like this surface-level antagonist. There are some layers to him. He can be useful. He can be pragmatic. And he is somebody who kind of, um, at this point, um, operates in kind of reality. And I, I don't know. This is a, a fun journey for both him and um, kind of the start of him and Cisco going at it. It totally is. And it also starts to underline, too, that this character is um, very much driven by his ego. And this becomes a bit of the ego showcase for Ducat, where <laughs> he becomes just much, much more like of a three-dimensional individual. And I'm glad you mentioned Necessary Evil, because you had early you know breadcrumbs of him talking about how you know helpful he was to the Bajoran people during the occupation and to have an episode like necessary evil also that suddenly contrasts against everything he's saying you're watching kind of this hellhole that he ran in necessary evil contrast against him talking so often about oh you know i was so helpful i did everything i could for the Bajoran people it starts to really underline kind of the um frankly the delusions that this individual lives in and it's interesting how the show walks the line between those delusions and his ego with making him incredibly charismatic watching him paired up with Cisco in um in the um, a key two-parter. Um and it's interesting though when you bring up the charisma part. The the writers did not want to let him go because when you jump into season 3, he really had nothing to do. There really wasn't kind of a Ducat journey in season 3. He uh has three appearances and he's on the view screen very briefly for two of those in the episode uh Defiant and in the episode Explorers in which uh um I think Explorers is Ducat's happiest moment in which he's there to light off fireworks <laughs> when Jake and <laughs> and Ben arrive in the uh the Bajoran um uh, spaceship and <laughs> like okay that is peak Ducat that is you know that is a Ducat that I could have some canar with you know if he's gonna light up fireworks for me but I like he was still fun in uh, civil defense uh oh, you know, yeah. earlier on in that season you know where uh they have the uh the space station is triggered thinking that the Bajorans are trying to revolt and so Ducat thinks he's gonna come to uh deep space nine to uh fix everything and no um <laughs> it, it was programmed to go against Dakot because it um the the program thought that if Dakot's there trying to shut everything down it means that he's been captured or something like that and so um again you bring up the fact that he, he's constantly being foiled and i think that's one of the <laughs> one of the starts of that journey for him though well it's great how the show can both use his ego as something that's scary and something that's very like unsettling on the show, but also use it for comedy. And Civil Defense may be the funniest Ducat usage ever, possibly. Like when he shows up and is so pompous and full of himself, and then has, you know, the tables turned and falls under basically the same issue that the rest of the crew is in in the Civil Defense program. Like, I, I don't know that I've ever laughed more at Gul Ducat than in that moment. I mean, he has a number of moments that are very amusing, but that one might be the ultimate like um playing with Ducat's ego on the part of the writers <laughs> well here's okay the, the writers are so self-aware of who this fella is you know you, you have some characters that are written and you kind of wonder like do the writers really know what they're doing here but the writers are so self-aware of what a complete narcissist he is and I think they play into that as the series progresses and I I, I do appreciate that because sometimes you're like thinking like what are the writers doing like are they self-aware of what's working what's not working with any given character 
And here, I, I mean, they, they always seem to possess self-awareness of, of Ducat's journey and, and what he's meant to represent. I'd love to know, like, what their sort of, like, influences were. Because, like, there were so many, like, stories being written in, like, the 80s, for example, about, like, basically sociopaths. I think of, like, Gordon Gecko and Wall Street and things like that. And you can feel that kind of, like, slime on Ducat, that kind of, like, swaggering ego-driven charisma that was kind of popular in the 80s and I do wonder if that was kind of at least kernels of what led to like a Ducat character. I, I wish Ducat had been wearing suspenders throughout the run of uh, Deep Space Nine <laughs> if he were going all Gordon Gecko on it on us right? Or a giant cell phone <laughs> <laughs> That'd <be> great Yeah <laughs> um, Yeah remember like on the, uh, the Dominion ships they have to wear those eye pieces it'd be great if Ducat <laughs> just had like a giant cell phone uh, attached to his head Oh, I would love it. And if he had a uh, a like uh, slogan like "Greed is good," I don't know what his would be. Paul rates are good. Oh well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's jump into season four, though, because this is—I think—this is really where Dakot's journey becomes um, very intertwined with the the story of uh, the series as well. You know, you kick it off with Way of the Warrior, and it's him kind of warning about kind of. Uh, uh, <laughs> The, the imminent Klingon threat here and what's going on uh, over there. Uh, and I, I, I also point out that um, just even stuff like him and uh, Garrick having that moment, like uh, shooting at Klingons, like in the corridors, like mm -hmm. um, it was great because like there's a moment later on where Garrick says, you know, I had a chance to kind of shoot them, them back, you know, while the Klingons were, uh, were attacking us and I didn't. And I, I, I really do regret that. Um, and I, I just wonder how different, the the series would have played out had uh, Garrick uh, actually taken him up on that opportunity, like uh, given a, a shot in the in the back while they're fighting Klingons. Well, that's another great facet of Goldicott is that he has relationships with so many characters. Because obviously, with Cisco as you know the new overseer of Deep Space Nine, Kira. I'm sure we're going to talk more about Kira going forward, but like that is a central relationship with that character and one of the really like probably the most unsettling thing about him as an individual but then also Garrick you know being the uh the guy who holds this grudge against Garrick for killing his father the Torazial stuff I'm sure we'll get to later but like there's not a lot of Star Trek villains when I think about like the big ones like who are Khan's relationships with Kirk um Kirk yeah uh uh and Borg Queen you've got like Picard and then Janeway and Seven and Seven yeah yeah but that's yeah. over two different series also. Like, Goldicott, there's, like, a role he plays on that show where he actually bounces off multiple characters. Don't forget Jack Crusher. Of course, Jack Crusher. <laughs> How could I ever forget Jack Crusher? But, yeah, that's something that it really felt like they realized when he was their main antagonist, that they wanted him to kind of connect to the lives of several characters and not just focus on, okay, he is going up against Cisco. I remember when the series ended, uh, the actors were doing all these interviews, and they had all kind of been debating about, uh, who got to kill Dukat, you know, like uh, mm. Kira, or I should say like Nana Visitor thought that Kira should be able to do it. Uh, you know, Michael Dorn thought that uh, he should be able to do it uh, to avenge Jadzia. You know, of course, yeah. like Avery Brooks is like, no, I mean, like I, this has been the antagonist. This has been my, you know, central kind of uh, antagonist throughout the run of the series. Uh, my, my nemesis, I should say, you know. So it's just kind of interesting, um, as you say, just how he it's not so one note with like his character dynamics. He he touches him on so many of these characters. Cause I also think like he works like, like just Mark Limo's performance works so well with other characters. And you can tell like when there's chemistry and when there's not between two actors, I, I was there any like actor in which Alimo did not have chemistry with none that I can think of. Yeah. That's not springing to mind. Yeah. I guess I have uh, two questions for you. Now, where do you come down as to who, should have killed Ducat. Who dramatically do you think should have done it? Should it have been Cisco into the fire caves? I my like okay. I I'll get into this a little bit like maybe in the the season six discussion. Mm -hmm. I think um, story wise, when you think about like the 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 themes that are being told, the the journey that's being taken across the run of the series, what one hundred percent makes objective sense to have. Cisco do it. But mm -hmm. my gut, what I want from my heart, uh, would have been Nerys. Like, I think that's where kind of the emotional journey is uh, going on, uh, for me at least, as this, as this particular viewer. What about you? 
that's how I felt as well. Like I come down as I really wanted to see Kira have that moment. Maybe they found something more positive having her bond with Damar and finding an ally in a Cardassian. Maybe there was like more of a kind of like a, a moment of catharsis in some ways for her character in the relationship with the Cardassians, but like everything that had been built up between all the awful things she'd had to deal with with Dukat, you kind of want to see it. And my second question was going to be, who is the least worthy of killing Dukat? <laughs> um, like among the main cast, or I guess no, kind of, uh, yeah. the, it's such a big cast though, it's Deep Space Nine. Um, Who's the one where you're like, really? Really? Them? <laughs> uh, I, I would say that even like one Lita has kind of an argument because you know like uh, how Rom was almost going to be executed uh, because of uh, uh, when uh, he was part of the resistance movement on Deep Space Nine under the second Cardassian occupation or the Dominion occupation, I should say. There, so Lita could make an argument for it. Um, and Bajoran, yeah, so yeah, she might yeah have a genuine argument. Yeah, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, Jake, like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, although Jake was briefly, was Jake not briefly possessed by the Paw Wraiths? Um, yes, he was. Yeah, so, um, maybe Jake could have, actually Jake does have an argument there. Um, <laughs> and also like, Quark was not flourishing exactly underneath the Cardassian occupation in, in Tarak Nor, so I, he can make an argument, uh, as to why, you know, oh, I was gonna say Ezri, but no, uh, he killed Ezri's previous, uh, previous host. Uh-huh. So, um... <laughs> You know, it has to be Julian, right? Is it Julian Bashir? I think it's Julian. Uh, I was going to say Miles O'Brien, maybe, but um, no, I think it's probably uh, Julian. Although the thing is, like, by us basically going through even these smaller supporting characters like Alita, for example, the fact that all of them have a reason that they would want Gold Dukat <laughs> to die speaks to how strong he is as a villain, right? Yeah, I don't know. This is why he was ranked our greatest villain of all of Star Trek here. So, mm-hmm. um, Cam, so after Way of the Warrior, we this is really where, you know, uh, Dukat gets going with his journey. We have indiscretion in which it's revealed that he has that half-Bajoran daughter, Tora Zial, that he kind of uh, uh, was happy to l- let live in like a, a Breen forced labor camp and was happy to murder her knowing that it would have brought disgrace upon his family. Instead, he takes her in and you're like, oh, this guy has layers. He's, you know, uh, multidimensional. He takes her in and then in return to Grace, he's been demoted to like a freighter captain. And Mm -hmm. it's, well, we do get the introduction of Damar in the episode though, in which it's pretty much Damar saying like, aye, aye. Uh, And I remember Casey Biggs kind of complaining. He said to like Iris Stephen Bears, like, do you really need me for this? I've got like two lines. And then uh, Iris Stephen Bears is just like, don't worry. I've got plans for you. I, I always found that very interesting, you know, but um, it's really where, like, Dukat has, as you say, at the start camp, he's always being foiled. And by the end of Return to Grace, he's taken possession of a Klingon bird of prey. And he's doing kind of like the guerrilla tactics against the Klingons as the uh, ongoing war with the Klingons throughout season four is uh, happening here. I think that that decision to have him running, you know, these, like, <laughs> one-ship battles with his bird of prey is part of the reason that fans really began to like him a lot because it's like the show in spite of the fact they realize he's an evil guy they couldn't quite stop themselves from making him look pretty cool when he swoops in to save the day and suddenly you have an incredibly charismatic character who is playing a very interesting role on the show in a often kind of heroic you know role it's a tough thing to deal with. And I know that Iris Stephen Bear had said, I, I've read quotes from him saying like, he just didn't know what to do at a certain point. Like Dukat was becoming so likable and fans yeah. loved him so much. <laughs> they realized they had to like chop this guy's legs off because like, what do you do? You know, you have that episode in discretion that you mentioned where it's him and Kira going and searching for, um, you know, Torah Zial. And it's totally framed like the searchers, the John Ford movie. And that also makes Gal Dukat somewhat sympathetic you have the journey with kira and like we've seen just how like (laughs) like unpleasant the relationship is between him and kira and you have moments where like she's appealing to him as an individual the fact that he decides to embrace torzial but at the end and not you know kill her it's like oh there's almost like a slight redemptive arc going on with this character and then you tie that into him suddenly having his own bird of prey and you're like 
You know, I think this Gal Gadot guy, he may not be so bad. <laughs> yeah, give him a spinoff. It was if it was CBS All Access circa 2019, he would have been getting his own spinoff at that point. It might be now too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give the 82 year old actor his own spinoff uh, now. But um... maybe the Section 31 movie follow up. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Uh, so uh, we drop in on Dakot, uh, you know, in se- season premiere of season five, Apocalypse Rising. Again, we know he's still doing kind of the guerrilla warfare tactics. Um, we get another kind of uh, flashback episode in Things Past, another view of Dakot on Tarek Nor, but it- it's not part of his like bigger journey. It's when we're at the halfway mark of season five in Purgatory Shadow by Inferno's Light. They're like, oh, um, now it's going to be kind of uh, Dakot and the Dominion kind of teaming up here and uh you know he's the one that gets to, <laughs> i don't know uh th- this is where he uh signs a deal with the devil essentially uh this is his own like very literal return to grace from the guy who was shunned to a cargo ship forced to do kind of guerrilla warfare tactics with a klingon bird of prey he is now you know um he could have called himself legate decot but he said that uh gull has a better ring to it here. And so this is really, I, I you know, I, I it's funny how I keep saying, like, this is where his journey really starts. But it, it's interesting, like, <laughs> um, this is almost kind of, this is where the start of the end of Dukat's kind of be, begins or commences at this point. It does, yeah. And season four with the Klingon um, combat stuff going on with Dukat, it's interesting because, like, I, as I recall, the Klingon story was not something that the writers were really pushing, that it was more like the uh, studio was like, hey, we don't want to keep diving down this Dominion War stuff. It gets confusing. We want some Klingons. I would have loved to have known what, like, Dukat's journey would have been in a world where, like, they didn't have that kind of Klingon arc put on them. Well, I I wonder if it would have fallen back into what was going on season three, where, like, he's serving their more kind of a functional role, you know, like, hey, we need mm. a Cardassian, like, kind of on a view screen. I, I, I just wonder if, like, they would have been... Because it is wonder, like, okay, would we have gotten, like, a Dominion War that would have started one season earlier, like, maybe in season four rather than in uh, season five if the Cleon stuff had not begun? Like, I yeah, I don't know. But, but that would that have meant that um, the character um, didn't necessarily have the uh, wind at his back you know, uh, for a lot longer, you know, maybe just in, it's interesting his journey in season seven, we'll get there, but uh, I just wonder if uh, it would have been like a character whose journey had kind of been winding down for like a longer period of time, if that's what the case was. And I think it is like, you know, that interference that almost makes the character more compelling, because if you don't have him in that bird of prey in season four, where suddenly you're like looking at him in a completely different way, that suddenly that pivot back to him you know, basically taking over the station, you completely kind of go like, oh, like, whoa, like this is not the character I thought I was dealing with. The way he's able to constantly pull the rug out from the characters, he kind of did it to the audience as well. I, yeah. And I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I just keep going back to that moment where he arrives on Deep Space Nine once again in Kalta Arms and as an audience member. You know, uh, not just for the characters are like, oh, this guy's back again. For the audience, it's just like, holy crap, you know. Um, mm. And him getting to the office and seeing Cisco's baseball just sitting there as well. You know, th- this is kind of the most, this is the most triumphant Dukat moment we ever got from the series is in the very last five minutes of Call to Arms. And what I liked about it was, too, it set up like the Cisco Dukat stuff as more of a chess match than a boxing match. And you have him leaving that baseball, and it's basically like a sign that strategically Cisco is already plotting on how to take the station back. And that's one thing I really like about this show is that Ducat and Cisco, it was always this like kind of matching wits relationship, and that made it more compelling. If it had been just driven by, you know, spaceship battles and whatever, like a lot of newer Star Trek is, it never would have been as interesting. Uh yeah, I, I well okay, so who would be the villain equivalent of um newer star trek just spaceship battles like i'm trying to think like who's like kind of the let's go uh, don't always want to pick on discovery but who was kind of maybe the uh uh, i guess osira i suppose yeah she she's not exactly uh like would dakot have been doomed to kind of an osira journey uh talking about (laughs) season three of uh, discovery here pushed into a gelatinous computer (laughs) 
Yeah. The end. Well, I <laughs> mean, maybe, Cam... maybe his fate wasn't that different, really. Actually, he, come he to gets, think of it. Yeah, pushed into a, a, a pit of fire. You know, yeah. So. Okay. You know what? I take it back. Maybe him and Asira are more aligned than I realized. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cam. I mean, season six. What can I say? I, I mean, uh, we got more episodes of Dakot in season six than ever mm-hmm. leading up to this, and I think for the the entire run of the series here. Um, and, and it makes sense. I mean, we have the it's the Dominion occupation arc. Um, and I will say that the one thing it, it's critical for his journey, but the thing that is kind of tying the character down is the uh, sometimes just agonizingly um annoying relationship that he has with uh, uh ziel like his daughter like she just seems so completely naive and <laughs> you know yeah. and, and then i i get what they're trying to do i just don't think they they ever quite figured out the ziel character which i mean look you never had to recast oh, no i'm sorry you did recast skaldicott once but you, you had to do that with ziel uh three different actresses like played her as well. And so they never quite got that character going. But, you know, by the by the time you get to the end of this arc, though, um, it's Ducat having a complete and total mental breakdown because of the death of his daughter. Um, I buy it. You know, you know d- despite what I might have said about like kind of the relationship kind of being annoying as it's going on, I completely buy it uh, as to why that uh, <laughs> that's how he ends up dealing with that particular situation but then it also kind of brings up like oh this guy he did he truly love the daughter or was he reacting to people taking something away from him like that he's not able to possess this anymore because he's a very possessive fella oh yeah and the thing about Xiao is i think maybe part of the reason the character doesn't 100 percent work is that she's basically just a walking talking achilles heel for him yeah and that's basically why she's there. And so to have her killed, and that is his undoing, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but is Ducat capable of love? I don't know that he is. Like, his family, you know, has left him with the reveal of Xiao entering his life once again. Uh, he doesn't seem too broken up about it, really, other than basically having his ego bruised socially. And then, like... The Zial thing, it seems like it's almost like he takes it more as a personal attack upon himself. And then you even look at, throughout that um, that arc where the, he takes over DS9, his attempts to possess Kira really intensify. Does he love Kira? I don't think so. But he is so driven by this need to kind of possess her that is very strange. And it's interesting when you read about you know, kind of the journey of writing that relationship on the show, how they talk about how, like, no one saw this as a viable relationship for Kira, except Mark Alima, who obviously understood the psychology of his character. But I don't think even in that situation, he was ever capable of loving Kira. It was entirely about conquering her. Then I wonder if his breakdown isn't, like, like on the surface, yeah, it's all about Zial. But I think what, the, the greater thing is he, he realized he's lost everything that he like he lost the station he lost the owl he lost you know uh his potential to uh possess kira in an incredibly incredibly sick way yeah that's all gone i you know and and so it's just him his entire existence the the way that he's framed himself where he goes from the the leader of all of cardassia at least in name to having nothing and that's where that breakdown really starts but i I will say this he he had the chance to escape with the rest of the dominion forces from deep space nine and he couldn't he like that's when he was having that breakdown and that that's why he like damar ends up being like the next legate of cardassia there so it is kind of interesting um but ultimately that that dominion occupation arc ends with him handing the the baseball back to cisco you know so yeah it's just so symbolic yeah Think about the parallels between Dukat and Cisco. That it's really on display in the episode Waltz. This, of course, is where uh, Cisco and Dukat are trapped on that planet following the uh, attack of a uh, Cardassian fleet on a Starfleet vessel that's transporting Dukat here. And I don't know the the both men. They at points ran, you know, the space station. Uh, one is emissary of the Prophets. The other will soon become an emissary for the Pa Wraiths. Uh, in this episode, Waltz, you know, where they really do get into Ducat's like mental health issues, he's having delusions of Damar and Wayun and Kara like speaking to him 
Um, just two episodes mm. later, that's when the Benny Russell journey begins in which he's projecting all these very important people in his life into his own existential journey. So there's just these very, very interesting parallels that the writers are really, really hitting upon between these two characters. Um, the question that you and I have always kind of been asking ourselves is, you know, is Waltz like kind of the, the peak of Ducat and is his journey more kind of on a, a, a downward slide from here on after? Well, I think it gets, I don't want to say, cartoony is not the right word, but it gets more kind of like overblown in terms of where Ducat goes going forward. And I think like I've always looked at Waltz as kind of like the epilogue to where Ducat's fall was at the end of the Dominion War arc. Like you have him broken at the end of that arc. And like this episode felt like the, not only is he like broken as someone who is trying to achieve something, he is now mentally broken. Like, what is left of this character? And clearly they would take him places that none of us could have ever seen. But when I got to the end of Waltz, I remember thinking, like, I don't know what you do with this character now other than see him at a worse state in the future. Which, at that point, what is even that on screen? Well, they clearly knew that they wanted to get him involved with the paw race sort of stuff. Because what he said to Cisco is, you know, I am going to unleash on the Bajorans, it, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it's not him declaring I'm going to return to the dominion and, and take back, you know, control from Damar or anything like that. He is very clearly like has his eye on the Bajorans in, in this episode. I mean, he's sitting there like saying like, you know, we're a superior race, you know, and the, the you know, the Bajorans want to be treated as equals when they certainly were not. And it's Cisco essentially like triggering Dukat into admitting that he just wanted to exterminate all the Bajorans at this point. And so they, they knew what they wanted to do with him. And they want, and again, that's why I bring up those parallels because it was very clear going forward that they were going to draw Dukat into the whole like Pa Wraith thing, even though, you know, you go to an episode like Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night and, okay, actually, you know what? This is what I realized though. Cisco hmm. um, ends Waltz saying like, you know, he is pure evil. I've seen pure evil now. And this is what's always kind of like bugged me about the concept of evil. I always think of evil as something kind of like, uh, you know, you're possessed by demonic spirits. Where I, I think leading up to this, I think Dukat was always kind of a diagnosable psychopath. When, when I think of people doing evil things, I think of them as just being like diagnosable psychopaths here. But right. I think moving forward from Waltz... They really wanted him to be like a literal incarnation of evil. And so that's why you have an episode like Wrong Starker Than Death or Night where, you know, Dukat calls up Kira on a view screen and is like, yo, um, I was hooking up with your mom during the occupation. Just wanted to let you know, you know, like that is an evil thing to do. Like, like what a little sicko. It's not just like he's a psycho narcissistic psychopath that went. We all know he is. It's like, no, that's that's a kind of evil thing. I think that's what Irish Stephen Bear was getting at. It's like, yeah, let's keep giving him like absolutely like disgusting things to do and see how uh, the audiences feel about that afterwards. That is like a real like psychopathic taunting thing too. Like, you know, when you hear about like serial killers who keep going back to the scene of the crime or something like that is basically what Ducat is doing in that moment. It's like, yes, I basically, um, you know, abused your mother and now I'm going to call you and remind you I did that. It's crazy. And I mean, I think at this point, maybe part of the issue is like the Ducat character is just so compelling in his journey through those first six seasons. When you get to like this point and pivoting into like the final season, he just becomes repellent in a way, which is, I think, something that I think the writers are a lot more comfortable with, like the character they kind of want to display. This is a truly, you know, evil individual, but in terms of like a character that you kind of invest in, you kind of pull back a little bit, I think, when you start seeing things like this. Yeah. I mean, I'll also point out, this is a third flashback episode for Dukat. The, the writers really like going back to Tarak Noor for flashback episodes. And, you know, just kind of uh, showing how he was. Because there's the words that Dukat says. He's like, I always wanted to treat the Bajorans with a softer hand. And then there's the actions that we see him doing when we're actually in kind of that Tarak Noor era you know maybe a decade mm. or so earlier and so i don't know i mean the, the guy's delusional the guy's a narcissist like we all know that you know and, and for me it's interesting like okay like in waltz he clearly has like mental health problems like a breakdown there 
But by the time we get to something like Tears of the Prophets, he's kind of figured out the whole Paw Wraith dealio, and he lets himself become possessed by a Paw Wraith. And it's like, oh, okay, this <laughs> is like literal demonic forces at hand to make him evil. This is where we kind of get into the whole like magic book part of his journey that I found to be kind of the least interesting part of Dukat's journey across Deep Space Nine. It's very almost like Ghostbusters. I guess you could call him Zool Dukat. <laughs> There, oh, I, I got that reference to quote one Captain America. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I remember when we started going down this road, I was like, ha. Huh. Like, once you kind of start giving your character supernatural powers and having him, you know, like zap Jadzia to death, I'm like, this to me kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't scare me. I think it's supposed to be, like, scary, but I don't find it as unsettling as this sociopathic social climber who will basically do anything to get ahead. Well, you know, um, I think that's a perfect way to jump over to the next episode then, uh, Covenant. Uh, I, I rewatched this. I think this is only the third time I've ever watched uh, Covenant. I never had, mm -hmm. like, fond memories of this one, but this is essentially where we find out that he's on Empok Nor running a 50-person Paw Wraith cult here. Um, Cam... <laughs> This one, it's just, it, it is like Dakot is at his sickest in what she makes everyone call him the master. Um, <laughs> I like this though. I like that it feels so driven by his ego and that is true to the character. You know, but also like he makes everybody take a vow of abstinence and if somebody wants to have a child, they have to ask him for permission. And so this one woman gives birth and they look at the baby and he's very clearly half Cardassian, half Bajoran. And he's like, hey, it's a miracle from the uh, the Paw Wraiths. It's a sign. They transformed the baby inside the womb. And it's just like, you psycho. You like, like, it's, just, it's the writers thinking like, oh, what can we do to make this like just such a sick, sick man? Then he's like, okay, well, you know what? I don't want to be found out. So uh, I'm going to depressurize the airlock that the, uh, that this woman, this new mother <laughs> is standing in so that she doesn't tell anybody. <laughs> and just like, this guy is sick to his bones. Like, this is where I think the writers are saying, like, th there's no nuances anymore. Th th there's no shades of gray. He is evil. You know, th this character, he's been possessed by evil spirits, and he's pursuing this. Uh, he he's, he's created <laughs> a cult in, in this situation. Um, Kira had a great line, though. Uh, you know, she says... After she's been transported to Empaknor, she says to him, you know, I don't know if you believe what you're saying, if you're faking it, or if you're just insane. And I think that's kind of a, that's a question I think you could always ask yourself whenever Dukat's on screen, you know, like, I, 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 I don't think it matters what circumstance, what season, what episode it is. Just ask yourself those three questions, you know, whether he believes what he's saying, whether he's faking it, or whether he's just insane. I always felt like he was faking it. It always felt to me like there was a lot of putting on an act because that was kind of how he was able to be so manipulative. And it was by keeping other people off balance. I don't think if he was not self-aware of his behavior, he would be as successful. I mean, he's not quite self-aware when he's in waltz. At that point, he may be broken. But leading up to that, I always got the sense he was someone who kind of knew what he was doing. But And I think in waltz, though, it, it, he is putting up airs when he's initially talking to Cisco, he's just like, I, I always wanted to, you know, have a soft hand yeah. dealing with the Bajorans, but Cisco was able to draw it out of him and that he thought he was a superior race to the Bajorans and that they all deserve to die, you know? So there is that part of him that, it, 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 that, that kind of smarmy, oily, fake salesman selling you like crappy cars, you know, kind of, you know, it, it makes me think of like, how did he rise to the station that he got to? No pun intended, but it, it, it's not through... <laughs> like great networking it's through seizing on moments you know where they're like oh i mm -hmm. see cardassia's in a weak spot and the dominion could use me in this situation and you know like to cut i mean look it, even if he was conscripted into the military um he could have i don't know been like a cook or i don't know an engineer or something he he ended up becoming a soldier and he ended up taking you know the role of prefect over cardass or over bajor it, you know, so it's like, like him trying to wash his hands of just following orders, you know, that, that, that that's what he keeps saying. And it's just like, dude, you, you I, I guess what I'm getting at is like how self-aware he is at times. And I think it, it, it kind of there's a spectrum of self-awareness that Dukat has. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's not a lot when it comes to kind of like the things that can break him. Like, I don't know that he's fully aware 
for example, about like when it comes to being defeated, like why that shatters him. But I do think like there is a certain amount of awareness when it comes to his machinations throughout the run of the show. And, you know, when you really think about it, the the cult leader thing, while I have some issues with it just dramatically and the way it kind of plays out on screen, it makes a ton of sense for this very oily character who likes to manipulate people that that is where he would wind up. In a different show, Goldicott, that could have been his entire role on the show, is just being a cult leader that becomes an antagonist. The fact that they kind of start more from a kind of a military background, like, you know, the idea of a military occupation, and then pivoted into a cult leader is kind of interesting. Well, yeah. Except then we get into the uh, the Kaiwin sort of journey, where things get pretty weird, you know. Uh, oh, do they? Freaky, even. <laughs> freaky. Strange bedfellows, huh? Um, yeah, he gets, uh, he gets some plastic surgery. He looks like a Bajoran. I remember he was really offended at the time because, um, <laughs> there were fans saying to him that they thought he was better looking as, as Dukat than he was like <laughs> as a Bajoran. <laughs> like, I, who would say that? Like, I get it. Like, like, uh, maybe you think that, do you really have to go up to like Mark Alimo at a Star Trek convention and, and tell him that to his face? Like, yeah. uh, you know, but, um, this is where we get into kind of the magic book sort of stuff that I, uh, I mean, look, uh, we, it was one of our top WTF moments where Dakot and Kai Wynn are sleeping with each other, uh, unbeknownst to her. Um, but I, 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 I think the plan was, if I recall correctly, is they wanted Dakot and Wynn throughout the last kind of, uh, final chapter of the series. But I think that storyline kind of ran out of steam. And so they took like a three or four episode uh, break until they brought them back for what you leave behind and and i don't know to, to me that the, the show wasn't necessarily at its best when I, I didn't mind kind of the bajoran prophet stuff those stories but like kind of the, the magic book paw wraith like we're dealing with like like literal demons here i was just like it, it got a little silly for me with, with regards to his journey the seduction of kai win and manipulation of her works for me because that is something i think that would drive to cut to find like the ruler of the Bajorans and to corrupt her like that makes sense as to where the character is going and it's yeah I agree like the magic book stuff is where I just once we're cutting to like scenes of him and Kai Win walking through fire caves for what feels like <laughs> hours and hours and hours of television Cam, the Dominion War literally ends they get back to Deep Space Nine and throw a big party and they're still walking through the fire caves and Cisco <laughs> still has time to take a runabout all the way to the fire caves journey through those fire caves and meet up with them like those geriatrics uh, they needed like some Sherpas bringing them through the fire caves or something like that well do you remember the moment too where like Dukat is blinded and like Kaiwin like throws him onto the streets yeah I remember being like oh like that is a incredible ending for that character if that is the case like he's basically just like a you know blind beggar on the streets i'm like what a like poetic ending for that character i think i would have almost preferred that to where we go because what's he gonna do like uh walk around like saying like i'm goldicott uh can somebody help me <laughs> you know so it's like doesn't look like goldicott not yeah. recognized as a cardassian like i think there's something about stripping that character of his identity leaving him helpless on the streets that i'm like you know what maybe that's not kind of the flashbang ending people would like but i do think it would have worked in some ways it, it's poetic you know i get that but look they ultimately wanted to have those parallels between cisco and ducat and I, it's amazing to me that you started off with episode one and those parallels are already there you know you've got like one former commander of the station up against the current commander of the station and you go all the way to the end of the series and you've got you know one emissary for the province uh, for the prophets versus one emissary for the paw race here and I, to me I, like i look I, maybe the paw race stuff never really worked for me but they were really determined to keep the parallels going on between the two characters and so i, I look if it's cisco who had to jump inside of the fire caves and <laughs> you know i i get that you know um but it makes more sense he would get to do that versus i i, I wouldn't want you know, Kira's journey to end because she had to jump into like molten lava, you know? Yeah. Like, hasn't she suffered enough? Has exactly, exactly. Like, the end of her journey is, you know, she, she's running Deep Space Nine, you know? She, like, when Cisco arrived on the station, she didn't want him there. She's like, we can run this ourselves. By the time the show ends, 
she's like, okay, um, I, these are people I care about. Uh, we are still on our own journey, uh, becoming like a planet that uh, can manage itself. She's in possession of, well, not possession, but she is administering the, uh, the space station by the end of it all. I'm just like, okay, like her journey makes sense. Like kind of the parallels going on throughout the run of the series. I, this is my long-winded way of saying like, this is why I love Deep Space Nine so much. Oh yeah, and she has now influence over the direction of her people going forward. Now that, you know, these threats are gone. I think it's a perfect ending for Kira. I do wonder though, if they should have, and I don't know how you do it, had a moment of interaction between her and Goldicott before, you know, Cisco's tackling them into the fire caves. I don't think they interacted at all since Covenant. I think like yeah. the last time those two interacted was in like episode nine of season seven, you know, which um, <laughs> what an episode it was, you know, um, I also forgot <laughs> to mention that uh, Ducat was going to make everybody take suicide pills so that they didn't find out that he was the father of the child. And then when Kira knocked him over and he lost his fake suicide pill he refused to take any of the other ones and so then he transports away this guy's a psycho he's <laughs> such a psycho you know and I, I but you know like his journey uh, to me best villain journey uh no matter what i think about the power race 100 the best villain journey throughout all of star trek 100 the best villain um so much of it like just so much credit has to be given to mark alimo though because he sells stuff that is just absolutely bonkers here and i'm yeah i, I am just like absolutely enraptured by this journey that, that goes on throughout the run of seven seasons. And even if we're not like big fans of the, you know, paw race and the cult stuff, the writers committed to it and they did their very best to try to make it work. And for some people it did work. Whereas I feel like sometimes they, in other Star Trek stories, will just like exploit a villain's popularity. It never felt like they were doing that. It felt like they had a place they wanted to take him. And it's more like, execution depending you know what how you feel about it well ultimately if you had to go through his journey cam like it, it it's hard to pick out like maybe a moment or an episode but what do you think is the most important Ducat moment or Ducat episode here episode um because uh, like I, I i was initially going to say before you said episode i was thinking of like just the uh the dominion war arc where they take over the station I think, like, that is the most crucial Goldicott story. But, like, what is the key moment there? It might be when he takes it back and is sitting there at that desk holding the baseball. Yeah. I think that might be it. Because you, he's victorious, but even still, he's sitting there holding a baseball and knows that it could come crumbling down mm -hmm. at any time. So, even though, you know, he has emerged as the winner of DS9, he isn't victorious. Cisco still kind of has an upper hand in the matter. For me... Yeah, that, that's a very, very good point. A very good argument. That that I think that's him in a zenith, hundred percent. Yeah. For me, I I kept struggling. Like, what is the the biggest turning point for Ducat? And as much as we like the episode Waltz, I don't think that is the most important Ducat episode. I'm I'm thinking about like where his character really came into uh, you know um his full self, and I I just wonder like I I think the episode indiscretion. Mm -hmm. It informs so much of what happens in his journey moving forward. If indiscretion in what she comes to find Zial once more, if that episode never happened, he would have continued being just a decul, uh, like a decul, uh, a gull <laughs> in the Cardassian Union. Uh, he would not have been doing like guerrilla warfare tactics. He would not have felt as if he was being. Uh, disrespected by the Cardassian Central Command by having to do cargo runs. He may not have felt as if he had to broker some sort of alliance between the Dominion and um, and the Cardassian Union. Um, he probably would, well, I, I could say he would not have come into Tarachnar's, uh possession of Tarachnor once more. He would not have dealt with the death of Zial. He would not have had that breakdown. You know, like, I think his journey would have been so much different had the episode Indiscretion never occurred. And that's why I think it's secretly maybe his most important episode in the journey of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that's actually a great argument. And it does jump out to me as, like, if I'm to name, like, my top, I don't know, three or four Galdicott episodes, that one is on that list. Uh, I did have a question for you, though, about Torazial. I mean, famously, yes, he breaks down after Torzial is killed as they are losing the station at the end of the Dominion War arc. 
had they not lost the station, had they not been dealing with a situation where the Federation was going to be successful and Torzial still died, do you think it would have broken them? Um. Hmm. That see, that's worth thinking about. Um, because I was making the argument like that he, a, a lot of his breakdown just had to do with the fact that uh, he was losing everything. Everything was come had come crumbling down around him. But hmm, like let's say she uh, slipped on a banana peel and went over the railing <laughs> on the promenade, right? Well, or they had completely defeated uh the federation's attempt to take back the station but say torzial was shot as i don't know one of the characters is making a getaway off the station so this is what i i'll answer your question but this is what it keeps informing me here though is like it, it's very clear that he is mentally unwell you know when you get to episode mm-hmm. like waltz um you know uh covenant like um but at a certain point, he goes from mentally unwell to being possessed by um, demonic spirits, <laughs> you, you know. So how how much control is he of his own faculties? I, I still think that he has agency um, when it comes to the paw race stuff, you know. Um, like, I think if he had won the war against the Federation and Ziel passed away in her sleep, I think he would have been okay, ultimately. That's kind of where I land. And I, I think back, and I don't think they're um, the same character, um, but I think about Damar. Um, he lost his entire family when he went into the uh, resistance movement on behalf of the Cardassians. They, they executed his entire family. He was stunned. And Kira had to be the one to say, like, get it together. Like, we still have a mission to complete. And mm. he ultimately did. And I, I, I think that just speaks... The fact that Demar didn't necessarily have the same mental health issues that it became clear that Ducat was dealing with um, throughout. So I don't know where, where you land on this conversation or this uh, question that you posed to me. I don't think it breaks him because I think what's very important to Ducat is this perception of power. And I think if he is in a position where he is still maintaining control of the station, he is going to be stabilized by the sense that he is still in power. And I think it's the fact he felt helpless and this basically Achilles heel snapped on him that that's what broke him. I think he would have been more revenge driven. He may have really like sought out uh, the people, you know, who were responsible for Zial's death. The way that he held, you know, a grudge against Garrick for killing his father. Like, I think it would have been a similar situation like than that. I don't think it would have resulted in Waltz, uh, you know, the alternate version of Waltz. Is there room for Dukat to somehow return in the Star Trek universe, you know, uh, or it, can we finally say his journey's over? Like, can we say like, nah, 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 let's not try to get the paw race to recorporealize him or anything like that. Like his journey's done. Do you think that's kind of a fair thing? Do, do you think there might be something interesting they could do that would actually be done well? Or do you think it's just like, come on, as you said at the start cam, like maybe he's one of the few villains who hasn't kind of been, uh, I don't want to say ruined, but... Um, tarnished. I, uh, like, tarnished, yeah. Yeah. I pray that they don't bring him back. Yeah. Because it's kind of like the more you kind of, like, haul a character like this out of mothballs, the more you risk just kind of corrupting what made them great in the first place. And I think that story holds together as an A, B to C story, and I don't want to see, uh, you know, demonic Ducat um resurrected from the fire caves and become a force that they have to go up against i do not need palpatine part two <laughs> okay um so who's the ray in this situation uh well i guess that would be next generation so it'd be someone in a new tv show right i guess so it'd be jack crusher then uh it could be jack crusher could be raffi could be seven but it would be one of those characters yeah. okay okay um so ultimately here, I, I only think that the reason you could bring back Dukat is if they're, you take one of the animated shows and they're like, hey, let's do like a another flashback to Terok Nor. That's the only... <laughs> that, that'd be fun. <laughs> that, that, that's, the, that's the only way I could imagine it actually working. Otherwise, I think his journey's done. I think he had one of the best journeys of, out of any of the characters, whether recurring or regular. Um, and it was a journey with uh, a lot of uh, hills and valleys as well. And, you know, like we could point to, like, let's be honest, like, you know, Hoshi Sato uh, appeared in like almost 
like triple the number of episodes that Dukat did, but I think he had a far more interesting journey than Hoshi Sato. He had a far more interesting journey than the majority of Star Trek characters, really, because yeah. even if you go back to the original series, a show that I love you know, so much, those characters didn't have like ultra-complex arcs. Uh, it was pretty episodic stuff, whereas like Dukat's story really has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a very like intriguing and compelling and often surprising journey to it. Okay. Well, it's decided an amazing character that youth agree with his values and everything. I'm uh, not where there mm. with you, but I, I, I still think that uh, best villain in all of Star Trek, uh, one of the best character journeys in all of Star Trek as well. So I'm glad that we were able to <laughs> cover that. Uh, Cam, next week, we're going to be tackling uh, Star Trek's top geniuses. And no, you did not name this episode after yourself. Um, I'm afraid to report <laughs> that, but um, we're going to be tackling like uh, the smartest characters in Star Trek. But, in a very interesting way, I, I, I think the I think the listeners are going to have fun as we kind of um, dive into what where we're going with this uh, podcast episode. So tune in next week. I, I promise it's going to be a lot of fun here. I think this one is going to be a blast. Um, we're going to keep it a little vague, but Tyler and I obviously have broken down the specifics, and I think it's going to be a, a very amusing <laughs> episode uh, to take part in. Okay, and of course you can leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also Find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Visions of Paw Wraiths. Smith. Shouldn't it be on X.com, Cam? On X.com? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess it's. I guess it should be at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. At least this way you could stop calling it the Twitter rather than just... That's true. Okay. Twitter. Do you want but... me... I can re-record. Okay. No, no, no. I, I think that's a fun okay. discussion that the listeners would love to hear us debate. Uh... I don't call it X yet. I, I'm still sticking to the Twitter thing. Well, I think like listeners know that uh, like I'm a journalist, and so in any stories that reference uh, Twitter, um, I uh, it, it's referred to it as X.com, formerly known as Twitter, because like nobody calls it like X yeah, anymore, yeah. or at, at this point, it, like it, it's such a dumb thing. Um, I don't know. I I'll, I'll <laughs> I won't share my opinions on Elon Musk at this point. I'll just say this, but um, <laughs> you can find me on X.com <laughs> at. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at reporting that's r-e-p-o-r-t-o-n n as in narcissist to the nth degree okay so until next time the arena is closed i think explorers is Dakot's happiest moment in which he's there to light off fireworks <laughs> when jake and <laughs> and ben arrive in the uh the Bajoran, um uh, spaceship